Get it, nerds. We're going podcasting. Hello and welcome to Hero with a Thousand Potions. It's a gaming podcast where two 30-something gamers examine the storytelling and gameplay of popular niche RPGs. It's like a book club with force fields powered by a magic scepter. This is season one and we're talking about Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition. We're both playing it on the Nintendo Switch. I'm Tyler, that's Nate, and uh, we invite you to join us on this adventure by playing Xenoblade alongside these episodes where we will explore the game chapter by chapter. In this episode, it is the showdown at Prison Island, chapter nine. Nate, how you doing? I'm doing all right. We have delayed recording a little bit tonight because about an hour ago, my room was, uh, or my office was about... 79 to 82 degrees at any point i was sitting just in my underwear sweating through them gross and so i said tyler i just need a break to see if this ac can catch up with whatever the hell's going on here all right uh shit hey this is the chapter we've been leading up to for the entire game yeah tyler before we get into it i need to i need to make an update on the saga of what the fuck is hanging around elvis's neck Sure. Okay. Okay. So we had a discussion a few episodes ago. I don't even know how many at this point about how I thought, hey, that's the Zohar, right? And uh, I was badgering you into that opinion. We're doing a little bit of recap here. And then the episode next, I said, you know what? I was wrong. That's the Zohar from Xenosaga. And, you know, it's not necessarily the one from Gears, blah, 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 etc. And even the connection was a little vague and thin and maybe I was just reaching. So the next day I was listening to the Retro Grade Amnesia podcast, their Xenogears series. Now I finished Xenogears a few months back or maybe even longer uh, around Christmas time of this year or last year, I guess. And, but I listened to the podcast when I'm on walks with my son in his little stroller. So they, I do not have, um, there are not enough walking hours that I've done yet to catch up on the Retrograde Amnesia podcast to the pace at which I was playing the game. So I'm still working through it. So uh, I was listening to the podcast. It is episode 48 of their season one Xeno Gears series. And it was around like the 30 minute mark, if I remember correctly, that they they were talking about the Zohar and Xeno Gears. And they made comments about how in the definitive edition of Xenoblade, the the Zohar hangs around a character's neck. And I was like, did they really? Yeah. And this was the day after I just made my most recent addendum to it. And I was like feeling completely validated by that uh, experience that maybe I'm not nuts, you know, so. Uh, yeah, that that happened. And now I'm unaddendumming. <laughs> That's not a word. I'm addenduming my addendum to say, you know, I actually probably was right the first time in that. That's totally the Zohar around his neck. So amending the amendment. Yes, exactly. That's the way the Constitution works. And you know what? We're going to go with it here, too, on the podcast. The Constitution of the podcast. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, that's pretty interesting that that uh, that they will call back to it there, I guess. So what is it trying to tell us that there's some sort of. It's a, it's a window into Alvis's allegiance in some sort of way. Yeah, and this chapter, we'll get into it later in more detail, but there's a strong connection of the manipulation of Ether and its ability to like control reality itself. And so in that, in those older games, Gears and Saga, that was the Zohar. But in this game, we're kind of looking at the Monado being the 
device by which that happens and it makes sense mm-hmm. so um mm-hmm. yeah so we'll get into that later once we get some uh some of these uh revelations unpacked here all right um this was a good well they're all very story driven chapters but this one was an, was especially story driven because it's the culmination of all of the visions and all of the events and all the players kind of coming together for one big moment at the end of this chapter here and so we're at a high point in the game right now yeah we're at a high point of the game story-wise we're kind of reaching that moment of another big turn another big call to action needs to happen because right now the call to action has always been at least for quite a while has been go to prison isle and deal with that vision that shulk's been having for like five chapters now you know at least half the game um as far as the actual playable aspect of the game or the combat or any of the events that go on as you as a video game player looking to hit buttons and make interesting things happen this is a chapter of what i would call non-tent there is just no content <laughs> in that department so non-tent. yeah we're gonna be we're gonna be watching shit oh my god nate <laughs> yeah this is a this is a straight up anime movie and it, it's extremely cinematic and you know people play you know blade for it's cinema for it's cinemagraphic quality but um there's a off there's a lot there's a lot that goes on and uh you're you're kind of advancing through it little by little here the chapter begins with a flashback to one month ago alvis and the emperor saurian are together in the throne room and alvis's hand is shining in front of the emperor who is deep in thought he's Alvis is like projecting a vision. It's a grayscale sort of sepia tone vision. Emperor sees himself casting a spell, creating a big rune on the ground. There's this huge bearded thing leaning down over him and and Melia and Shulk. Shulk draws the Monado. Metal face is threatening everybody and then makes the killing blow on the Emperor. Or at least we see Metal face slashing with his with his knife fingers and the Emperor, his, his eyes go wide. You know, as if he was struck by a mortal blow there. Once that vision's over, the Emperor says, Can this be true? And Alva says, It'll happen soon. And this vision is a sign, but by your will, it can be changed. That's something we've talked about is all the visions can be changed. They can be made different, different circumstances, different events happening. Everything we've seen up to this point of visions we've been shown have not 100% happened the way that uh we expect them to base on the vision right so we've been able to change things we have been able to change things in the ether mines uh, under colony six ryan was able to change a vision um that shulk had so it is possible and i suppose certain i suppose certain people have better power over changing visions than others i can imagine the emperor and alvis would be better at changing a vision than ryan perhaps ryan was a fluke or an extension of his strong um sheer a sheer power of will moment for him and it's kind of a simpler way of looking at some of the really heady and weird moments of anybody who read the xenogears perfect works and the descriptions of how like the Zohar and Ether and everything had the ability to like change probability and reality and outcomes, like assess every outcome of a situation and then make the one that it deemed most preferable happen. Mm-hmm. 
we're kind of seeing that here too of you know fate is kind of on one course and with through ether through this device there are different courses we have open to us i'm still very skeptical of alvis he's i don't know part of me part of me wonders if he's giving this vision to the emperor as a means to lure him into some sort of action and uh, I think that'll be validated a little bit later. Yeah, last episode I said, we like Alvis. Alvis is a good guy. We're pro-Alvis, right? And then this chapter came into... You said that. Yeah, I did say that. I'm sorry. Because this chapter just came into shit all over that big time. <laughs> uh, every time we see Alvis, there's a little, little something more shifty than the last time going on. We cut again to the present in which... The team is watching a high Antia air show from inside the bubble domes. Melia in her mask is on the hollow screens and she's issuing a statement. She's giving a speech. She's accepting responsibility of being a ruler. This is the big, um, <coughs> this is the big ceremony in which she is uh, becoming the empress here. By the authority of our divine ancestors, I, Melia Antiqua, am honored to accept the responsibility of becoming your next benevolent ruler. Dunbin asks out loud, which is the real Melia, the fragile girl they saw in the forest, or this emperor-elect? And Shulk recalls the emperor's uh, request to treat Melia as a friend and less like an empress. And then Shulk says, you know, she's both. She's both of these people, and we shouldn't treat her any differently. Yeah, I don't know. Did you say you got that dialogue from Dunbin? Because mine was from Sharla. I don't know if that's cut and dry or if one of us is clearly wrong. I don't know. Uh, I have that Sharla Charlotte questions if the humble girl in the forest or the confident ruler is the real Melia. Place your bets. What's post-production Tyler going to say? Okay, let's see. Ding. Don't take my word for it. Let's check the source material. Most majestic. That fragile girl in the forest is a distant memory. But which one is the real Melia? Ah, oh, shit. Uh, of course, I got it right, Tyler. Thank you. When Shulk is receiving that vision, I'm getting the feeling that um, the duality of Melia is also the duality of him. So, you know, the Emperor is asking her to be a friend and not so much, you know, uh, seeing her this way or the other. I think Shulk is, is kind of seeing it's like, I can both be her protector and her friend. And like that he's maybe perceiving a deeper bond with her. Um, again, I, I'm feeling like I'm wrong about other broadcasts I was receiving of potential relationships in the in the history of the game. I might be wrong on this one, but I'm getting a Shulk and Melia companionship arc possibly developing in the future. But, you know, who knows? That's a really interesting perspective, Nate. Like, Shulk projecting his conundrum onto Melia because they both do kind of share that same challenge um, with, their, with their lives there. Very interesting. My next note is um, Alvis. Alvis, you piece of shit, you're conspiring with Larithia, and we know she's a baddie bad. She's a conspirer. She's been the, the shadowed character in Backrooms saying bad stuff, and now Alvis is talking to her, which means Alvis is now a bad guy. Confirmed. I will not be swayed from my opinion. This is this week's Alvis opinion. <laughs> so uh, he says that all is going well uh, to Larithia, so... I don't know, man. So let's say Lurithia is an agent or a member of the Bionic Order. Alvis is playing into that, but I can't imagine he's part of that. He feels like he's some part of some, 
an allied group towards that for some deeper, bigger scheme. That's my opinion on it. And they both play the pronoun game. Lorithia says, I wonder if he feels the same about the things you've been up to. And then Alvis goes, nothing can befall him before he sees his dream fulfilled. Well, I guess that him is Shulk, but who's this he? Yeah, we might find out, but I'm not sure even having finished the chapter that I know the answer to that question just yet. Me neither. Me neither. We'll, we'll, we'll probably get to that. Shulk is on a collision course with fate. He is going to get what he wants. It seems that way. I mean... Shulk appears 100%ly fated to accomplish his goal, which is unleash the Monado's true power. And it is absolutely inevitable because the wielder of the Monado wields like the power of all creation on Bionis, Ether. Mm-hmm. And later in the, maybe at the culmination of this chapter, I'm going to challenge these ideas that fate is even involved here. And, you know, I, I've said in past chapters that there's all this talk about the Monado as Shulk's weapon and he is in control and all this stuff. And I've questioned, it's like, are we just the puppet of the Monado? Is the Monado taking us where it wants to go, Mm -hmm. showing us things that it wants us to see in order to make it think it's our idea to do these things. So, um, once we have some more Intel here, I'm going to challenge this idea that it's fate that like you know fate has a role and that we're breaking that we're bucking away from that but what we do know here is that pretty much all roads lead to prison island the emperor is going there we eventually need to go there um we know that mechon jets are on their way there at some point here so it's like every thread every uh interested party is going to prison island at some point in this chapter Mm mm-hmm yeah, which is, um, I'm glad you mentioned the Mechons because that's what we see next. We cut to a very short scene. We have Metal Face and Nemesis Face uh, charging through the atmosphere towards uh, the Aerith Sea here. Metal Face is gloating about his new ether change and coat of paint, which is kind of weird and um, not, <laughs> I don't know, not very robot monster like of him (laughs) but what is interesting about the scene is that we get our first really good picture of nemesis face um it is a white or silver shaped mechon with fins flaps wings spread out like a half lotus as it flies um it has gold highlights on it with pink accents it is feminine in shape very slight shoulders and thin legs um and metal face kind of trashes it he calls her a goody two-shoes uh, I've seen zero gloating, bragging, and brown nosing from Nemesis Face, but Metal Face is just this brash, narcissistic, shallow douche. Yeah, and there's there's an aspect here of, you know, we'll go back to gears of even within unified parties of people that you think are on the same side, there's like conflict and differing differing goals between individuals and things like that. So we're getting a bit of that here, too, where we see Mechon from our perspective as this unified big evil force, but we definitely are getting different motivations, even this early on, for people that are seemingly on the same side. I'm not talking about motivations. I'm saying I'm saying Metal Face has a personality disorder. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll talk. That's another thing that once we get to this end of this chapter, we'll have to throw our observations out there yeah he's i don't know but we'll see we'll see 
We still do not have control of our party yet. There's one more scene. We're back at the meeting room, you know, our old prison cell, quote unquote prison cell. Ryan asks if we can press the emperor for access to prison island now that Melia is emperor-elect. Dunbin says, relax, dude. He's thinking about it. And however, we do have an appetite to see Melia and, you know, be her friend and help her de-stress from the ceremony she was just a part of. And so we go to visit her. And in that conversation, uh, I don't remember what he says. Maybe you can post-production Tyler this in. Um Ricky interjects into the conversation. Uh, all I have is that Ryan says, uh, interrupts Ricky and says back to him, quote, the adults are talking, unquote. Ricky and friends visit Melly now. Hey, the adults are talking, Pops. Ricky want to see Melly. And I just think like, bro, Ricky fucks. He's got more <laughs> kids than you could ever understand, Ryan. And like, Ricky goes hard. He has... He has lived a, a thousand lives of experience and battle and acquiring debts. <laughs> he, he's done it all. And so uh, I, he's older, too. Yeah, it, exactly. So I don't know what this is another Dumbo Ryan moment to say the adults are talking because, yeah, I don't know. I, I saw that horde of children. and I just thought, man, this dude has seen some shit. He's not, you know, I went looking through the party menu and Ricky is not the oldest party member. Yeah. Melia is like 88. Oh, God. That's a Japanese trope of like, I know the, the girl looks like she's 12, but then the all the fanboys are like, well, she's actually 105. So it's OK. I, I mean, know. It's, I, know. I hate it. I, I hate it. Fire Fire Emblem. I love you as a video game. But get the fuck out with those moments. It's creeping into Legend of Zelda, too. Oh, God. Um, right. So we show up at the Imperial Villa. Melia shows up without her hat. You can now customize what she's wearing on her head or choose to give her her mask as well when you're equipping her as a character. Which reconceals her wings. Yes. Too. You can't have mask and natural wings. We get to talking. She reveals her mother has died. Talk, 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 talk. Banquet in the palace in less than an hour. So while the group's visiting Melia, uh, she's... As we said, she's unmasked, her wings are uncovered. And one pertinent detail is she can only be like this in private. Like, we've seen her in Mock the Forest, at least the hat was on, but we've seen her face and everything. But when she goes out in public, she has to cover her wings and cover her face to everyone. And so when you run around as Melia and talk to people, they have no actual clue who they're talking to. They don't realize they're talking to the Empress. Um, so you're just a, a random person to them. So that's, that's interesting to me. Um, and then... The group is still dunking on Ryan. They're, they're talking about him being like an embarrassment and uh, essentially Melia not wanting to associate with him in public either. And uh, I'm shying away officially from the Sharla interested or falling for Ryan theory now because he's like that other guy that I can't remember his name. Um, do you remember his name? Hold on. Gad Gadalt. That's, Gadol, thank yeah. you. Yes. So very good. I'm going away from that theory now because Charlotte dunks as hard on Ryan as anyone else in the group, um, and when she can. So um, Melia's just kind of had too much of their shit and says she's too busy. But Shulk's eyes glow and he sees the Emperor's killing blow again. Shulk is about to explain this to the group, but then sirens sound. The entire capital is alive with klaxons. 
in this space of time between that scene in the meeting room and speaking with Melia in the Imperial Villa, you do have agency over your party. And it was during this space of the chapter that I went and did every possible quest I, I could all over Bionis um, as we got ready to do the previous two episodes um, from the chapter and behind the scenes here. So I've cleaned this place out and I've gotten more done in Colony 9 and elsewhere. Did you uh, eventually just turn the audio off and decide to put something else on in the background as you digested this monumental mountain of quests? Mm, I don't remember it. Mm. I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. That's what I had to do last episode because it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot. You know, we talked about it, but um, mm-hmm. I have a couple things that I did on the side that were interesting. Um, Melia unlocks an extra skill tree branch called Retinance uh, via a quest where at the culmination of that quest she argues with a woman about sharing their feelings for men. So mm-hmm. we got that skill tree branch, but we also failed the Bechdel test for this uh, series of scenes. Yeah, oh. that was interesting. Uh, what else? What do I want to talk about for the quests? Um, the I'm tired the... of questing. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. That's all. I, I have one about um, a researcher that is researching a war god faith, inspecting ancient High Antia runes, and uh-huh. appears like the statue is displaying wings from the head, back, and even possibly the waist. We all know what angels look like, right? Modern angelic depictions just give wings to angels on their back. But if you actually read biblical Hebrew mysticism, mm-hmm. um, angels actually had six wings and there was a pair that would cover their eyes a pair that would cover their hands and a pair that would cover their feet so that mortals would not be stunned and killed with the vision of such glory as the eyes hands or feet of an angel i don't know what that means don't ask me but uh it's weird but we do know that Takahashi loves his like uh, Jewish mysticism. So if we're going with like the high Entia progenitors having more wings in more places, I think that's going to be the inspiration for it. I didn't know that. And we do see more iconography of that a little bit later. I can't wait to get back to it. Sweet. We cut to Callian and the Emperor. The Emperor says that there's only one course of action left now that we're under attack here. He stands in front of a weapon display case and it's holding a multicolored staff. And what's at the tip of this staff, Nate? Do you recall? Oh, I don't. It's six angel wings. Oh, right. Yep. And they're all in a funny formation, kind of like those biblical descriptions of angels that you just described. I didn't notice that my first time. That was on the rewatch. The emperor tells Callian to take charge of the capital defenses and then the emperor goes to Prison Island on his own. What he's going to do with this staff and on on the island, we don't know. But it might have something to do with that big secret. We talked in the last chapter about how there's there's so many aspects in play here of essentially not letting Chulk go to Prison Island. There's ether being disturbed. There's something hidden away there. There's, there's a, just a big looming mystery on unveiling this could potentially mean the changing the face of the world you know so uh there's a lot hanging there um in the midst of this melia hearing about the vision 
Um, she wants to go and intervene and stop the emperor or go to the island and help him, save him, prevent that death, change that fate as we are become so accustomed to doing. The dialogue kind of takes a nosedive into shitsville for me. Um, Melia exclaims in like these repeated robotic exclamations, I must go to the palace. I must stop him. I must go to the audience chamber. And it's like, for me, it's like hold up there a little bit sparky uh, for a game that's pretty good at dialogue and voice acting. Um, I can't really believe that this scene made it in there in such a robotically executed way that's like um you know you see those movies where the the director is like uh let's try that again from the top with feeling this time and i i feel like somebody forgot to do that on this one i've been noticing that with shulk's dialogue in this chapter where uh some someone says something and shulk gasps or sighs and says their name and then the person continues to talk yeah the i i didn't notice that as much but the this chapter, um, I'll throw this in here, and we'll discover more of these uh, breadcrumbs as we go along this journey. This feels like a Xeno Gears Disc Two chapter for me, um, just because a lot of exposition, not a lot of gameplay, a lot of just flying through moments that maybe could have had their own set pieces their own scene their own opportunities to breathe but because we're rushing towards this conclusion and we got other stuff to get onto, i'm having a, a like i said xenogears disc 2 feeling about this chapter as i play through it and it, you know that's even kind of popping up in some of this dialogue for me did you explore the imperial villa before you left yeah there's a um heart to heart where again it's two mystery characters i still don't know how this works because i i asked you about this tyler i was like mm-hmm. who, where is this armada of party members i have yet to meet or is there one single person who just wants to be best friends with everyone and will not shut up about it and i haven't met them yet i don't know i i'm still everywhere i go it's question mark question mark you don't have this character uh mm-hmm. so i don't know and i wonder if we do have the characters, but that moment can't unlock unless we pass a particular story beat. Oh, that might be it too. Yeah, like you want to talk about some event that happened, but the event needs to happen first. To be completely clear, that's the entire experience of trying to care about any of the story in World of Warcraft. It is, you know, <laughs> you you went to the raid and you killed the last boss and you witnessed his death scene and then you go and do these quests in a random town and the guy you killed a week ago is there taunting you and fucking with you and uh, making relevant plot points happen and you're just like, I don't know when any of these things actually happened anymore because it's just such a giant mess you know between raids and dungeons so um yeah i i i commend being locked out of those scenes to avoid my confusion for sure we race to the throne room alvis is here Callian's there alvis says that he's seen the vision too and that the emperor well he knows what his fate is and so i can assume alvis is giving shulk a knowing glance as he's talking about the emperor knowing his fate um, this is coded language, it feels like, between these two vision visionaries. Um, we decide to go to Prison Island with Melia, although Callian tells us not to. And then Dunbin, for the second time in two chapters, says, Fuck your laws. Those are high-entia laws. I don't have to, I don't have to 
do anything about that. And you can stop me if you want, but I don't give a shit. And he gets the Empress's brother to apologize for trying to enforce his own people's laws in their own goddamn homeland. Yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. And when you think about it, um, you remember how when Dunbin first joined the party, Dunbin was there, Dixon was there, eventually Dixon left. And we had these questions of like, why now? Why did these characters join in? It's because we were about to instead of just running through the wilds and exploring and living the dream, we we're about to run into figures of authority and Shulk was not going to be the character to within his spectrum of emotions and ideas, be the one to buck authority by any means. He would probably slink back into acceptance and friendliness. So Dunman is specifically here. He was brought to our party at this time that just as we were about to ex- like have these experiences, He's here to say, fuck you. We're doing what we want. You know, we're going to go out and make things happen. So uh, I, I definitely I agree with his position. And I like that he's a member of the party to uh, drive these things forward. So, yeah, we're breaking the rules. Dunbin's asserting himself. We're going to go there. We don't care what anybody says. Everyone in the capital, as we run around and talk to people, apparently knows of a Mechon assault coming. <laughs> But how long does it take for these jets to arrive? We saw them crossing the threshold like 20 minutes ago. <laughs> and the zone is big. And I would love to hop on one of those Mechon to uncover my map fully. But it's not that big that we're just standing around town and people are having full-fledged conversations about them still on their way to arrive at Prison Island. Right? Am I wrong in that? You know Metal Face zipped all over the zone as soon as he got there to fill in the map because he's a fucking nerd. Yeah, and then he screenshotted it and sent it to my Switch to piss me <laughs> off. So, uh, um, I, I would think like we should be actively watching them bomb shit. So as I'm thinking that to myself, I, I make my way to the Sky Terrace. You can actually see like these little flickers of light dance around Prison Island. I'm not sure if they were there before. As we finish the chapter, I'm definitely sure they weren't there before, but um, those those little flickers of light seem to suggest the Isle has some sort of barrier that's being assailed by Mechon in some fashion. Three, four, maybe more Antia jets circle about, but they don't seem to be doing much. So um, this is definitely a Gundam moment. There will be, in order to create tense dialogue scenes, there will be people talking at a ship bridge, and then outside the window you'll just see these uh, pink and orange balls bursting in the in the distance and lasers shooting about, and you'll have a 10 minute long dialogue scene while just watching all of these explosions happen. So kind of the same thing happening here where you're, you're seeing the faintest hint of a battle, but nothing really tangible. No progress is being made. No, uh, tide turning amount of ships have been destroyed in this sequence. The vibe I got from that storytelling effect of battle in the distance, I was getting from return of the Jedi with Luke and the Emperor watching the final battle taking place from the Emperor's throne room. Yeah, that is a perfect example of what we're talking about. Yeah, that's that's great. 
So Prison Island looks extra foreboding with those explosions taking place all around it. In order to access Prison Island, we have to unlock two seals. And these seals share the same names of the Hyantia sister ancestors that we first were acquainted with in the marsh. Katoral and Sultanar. That's kind of an interesting callback. Unlocking these seals is pretty easy. We go to two different floating reef islands and we climb a tower and we click a thing. And this was... <coughs> A trivial chore. This is, again, what I'd call disc two content, or as I said earlier, non-tent, because here's the thing. Nothing, because these were monsters we engaged previously in this zone, uh, a zone that is now chapter old, nothing on this these islands aggro me or a threat to me in any capacity. So it's just a matter of teleporting to a location and running straight to the objective and clicking said objective. Mm-hmm. That um, again, I I might be dogging on another game a little bit too much in this series, but that is also very akin to the experience of playing Final Fantasy fourteen. A lot of just teleporting across the world, running somewhere, clicking a thing, and then waiting for the next anime cutscene to happen. Which is going to the location where the two seals are shooting energy beams at um, a portal appears and a sky ray attacks chunky bass music and this mini boss is pointless Melia calls it one of the oldest creatures on Bionis and Dunbin says that would imply it's sentient and I have to go no shit it's alive <laughs> of course it's sentient <laughs> Yeah, well, there's this, like, blurred line of people not understanding what's a machine and what's an actual, like, living uh, being deserving of your uh, respect of its autonomy in the Hyantia society. But Dunbin would be the person that I would think would have that straightened out. I would think Melia would be the one confused or some other Hyantia. But whatever, it is what it is. The Skyray was stupidly easy. Yeah, it's, it's a footnote. It's... We should just move on. Yeah, uh, we have a we have a uh, a big boy cut scene coming. Yeah, you want it? The emperor stands atop prison isle and laments that the defenses will not hold. It occurs to me that I don't really know why the mechon are here yet. Whatever, I guess they're the bad guys, so that's why they're here. But I I don't know, Tyler. Do you have a like clear and cut motivation for them at this moment, or is it just to come kill or, people? Um, Oh, for, for the Mechon being present. Well, according to the according to the visions, they're here to kill the Emperor. Uh, yeah, according to the visions, right? But the Mechon are not. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like they're they're talking. They have an objective or whatever. You know, why would they come to Prison Isle if they didn't know that the Emperor was going to Prison Isle? And the reason the Emperor is going to Prison Isle is because the Mechon are coming to Prison Isle. You see, there's a little bit of a something there. There is you. You could hedge on the idea that the green Mechon in the final scene of the previous chapter um, had particular orders to keep an eye on Prison Island, mm. but we didn't hear that, and that's just um, that's just conjecture. Yeah, or maybe there's tiny little Mechon bugs flying around us everywhere, and they know everything we're about to do because they're watching via cameras. Sofans. That 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 right there is a a Metal Gear Solid plot development that I just came up with. 
So if three games later you want to just hand wave away something that you couldn't really explain that well, you just come up with the uh, there's microscopic bugs that do things for you. So anyway, um, the emperor uses a staff at the prison aisle uh, while speaking ancient gibberish. <laughs> now I I am um, I don't know maybe maybe the de- <laughs> the design. Maybe the design language of the High Antia just comes off a little bit. Do you know that effect when you watch a Transformers movie, Michael Bay Transformers movie, and you just don't know what the hell you're looking at half the time? Um, as a Transformers transforming, it just looks like hot garbage and not actual parts of a car or a robot. Um, the High Antia's design language, like Alvis's pants, for example, just come off as... As the Emperor is speaking gibberish, I'm also seeing uh, visual gibberish as well. So I commend you on actually looking at the staff and being able to pull something out from it. Maybe I'm just having a really dumb moment where I didn't notice it, but I did not notice anything significant about that staff whatsoever. But it was it was in the moment he so he inserts the staff into a I don't know a depression in the ground and in the moment he holds it up in a, in like a murder stab sort of. Um, hand gesture, the camera freezes on the detail of the end of the staff for a second before it goes in, and that's when I recognized it. Gotcha. And that's, that, man, that's a, that's another one of those moments of you and I just syncing up, because I got you the lore you needed, you got me the physical description of the item. I didn't even know when I pulled that detail out uh, from that other quest that that was going to be extremely relevant for us, so... That's that's cool. So um, out of the ground, a what I'll call a binding apparatus rises. Does that sound like a correct way to describe that? That's uh, good for me. Yeah, I like it. Yep. A massive muscular bound figure held to it by his wrists kneeling uh, is displayed before us. He's got blue skin, red eyes and hair draping to the floor from his head and his face. He does not speak with animosity or malice for his current condition of being a seemingly imprisoned man. <laughs> I don't know what to call him at this point. And he sounds like God. Yeah, yeah. That's a, he, he looks like God a little bit. If God were blue, this is how I would draw him, right? A giant. So this is what was sealed away. How long has it been, Emperor? He addresses him as like a familiar, right? And the emperor is like, I've never met you before in my life. And the um, the figure, he says that he, he sees through the emperor and he sees into his very bloodline. So to him, the emperor is familiar as anyone else he's met from the bloodline. And um, that the emperor should do what he came here to do. The emperor chants, waves of light emanate out from the bound figure and kind of enter into the combat uh, sphere surrounding the island, um, the mech on circling, and it, it looks like they're kind of pushed back or assaulted in these, like, angular waves of light that uh, almost like, you know, like a heat-seeking missile turns around and keeps on the target even though it's juked or um, 
gone in a different direction. These waves of light mm-hmm. are hunting the Mechon in the area, it seems like. This is also kind of a Gundam moment for me of uh, a, a little bit fast-paced, crazy flight slash laser shooting action. Yeah, it creates a halo of six or seven energy balls that can blast green lightning in like all directions or targeted directions. It's, it's quite a weapon system. It's pretty awesome. Uh, during this whole thing, yeah. Elvis looks on from his perch, grinning. So, more bad Elvis vibes on the horizon. We arrive on Prison Island. There are elementals and sky rays all about. We can see the green shield, but we're inside it now. Um, we see a gold rune on a door, and there are statues of Hyentia forefather ancestors are nearby, but they look like hawk beasts. They don't particularly look like the biblical angels or the xenogear like statues that we've seen in the marsh and in the capital. They look like hawk monsters. They look very similar to the original Telethia that we saw under that was under the command of Alvis um, when he um, was our um, ex machina from the um, from the fight in which Dunbin and I don't even Dixon I, I don't even remember what chapter that was at that point was that four that was the end of the Ether yeah, Mines chapter yeah. so mm-hmm. well and I don't know if you have this but Riki calls it a Dino Beast and we know that. We have literal dinosaurs walking around uh, Machna Forest and around the frontier village. So where does Riki come off calling it a, a dino beast or like a dinosaur, you know? So there's we know that um, kind of the conventional Jurassic Park depiction of dinosaurs has even been updated and modified since that movie came out to where we a lot of dinosaurs now are now seen as having feathers and bird-like qualities and maybe even a little bit of a non-functional wingspan to them underneath their little arms and things like that that's kind of archaeologists have gone that route in recent decades right so the game might be leaning into that a little bit of you know, even before the Hyentia, the bird people and the the bird race, there were bird monsters that started out as bird dinosaurs that started out as this like ancient primordial chaotic uh, force. There are engravings nearby that look like Monado Kanji. Melia says the magic words to release the seal to enter to get from this landing area to inside. And so she says she does her open sesame thing and we get in and it's vision time. Um, we hear the giant speak to Shulk. He says, heir to the Monado, let the shackles be released. And the giant kind of like does a Hulk, like raises fists in the air, unshackled. Heir to the Monado, let the shackles be released. And um, Shulk does not share his vision with everybody. Firstly, I'll say it's interesting that we can see Alchemoth in the distance in the same way that we could see Prison Island from the Citadel. That's pretty neat. There are columns of red and neon blue flames that function as transporters from different areas of Prison Island here. There's a green framework of something in a corner and it has to be deact and it happens to be deactivated. And there's another framework elsewhere, but that's also deactivated. Don't know what that was about. Never figured it out by the end of the chapter. 
everywhere we go, we're, we're barreling down black stone hallways, black cobblestones on the floor here. There are banisters of thick black chains held up by black stone spikes. Each spike has a hollow in it with a burning blue flame. There are sconces on the walls in the shape of an open three-fingered hand that also hold a blue flame. Um, it's a pretty dark, grim, rainy, volcanic rock, craggy, hostile, and empty place if it weren't for all of the elementals and um, sky rays flying everywhere. Yeah, and did you get into combat with literally anything as you traverse this place? Nope, didn't want to. Yeah, this is more... I said it before, I'm going to be redundant. This is disc 2 non-tent for me. Um, there's teleporters that don't work. There's random warp points that no explanation of where I'm going or why. You know, for anybody out there who's played Gears, you've played those dungeons where it's just slapping together hallways and elevators and teleporters and you're just playing the trial and error game with no explanation of like diegetically why this place exists this way who built these walls and these halls to operate in this manner makes no goddamn sense but it's a video game so you know we like mazes we like dungeons and we're gonna i i appreciate a good dungeon a cave being a dungeon with twisting winding unpredictable you know the the ether mines it makes sense right but a place that's supposedly designed by people and still functions this way fire that man he sucks <laughs> <laughs> anyway so yeah i'm not i'm not a fan of this this is another example of this chapter kind of blue balling me on playing a video game so the emperor and giant area is in this elevated place that's at it looks like it's at the topmost level it's kind of exposed to the outside if it weren't for all of the green barrier stuff and we're at the bottom of the staircase that connects the other parts of prison island to that area and while we're stopping to catch our breath from racing around this place a mechon in jet mode crashes into the magical barrier right nearby and ricky shits his pants <laughs> yes I uh, noticed that too. That's pretty funny. Um, Melia races up the stairs and sees the Emperor in front of the imprisoned giant. The runes around him are still glowing, and he's holding the spear in its slot. The giant says, Welcome, true heir of the Monado, which is something we've heard in plenty of visions before. I'm going to say a little bit more about the giant himself. I think he did a very good description, but I want to discuss like his posture. So he's kneeling with his body hanging forward by his wrists, which are bound up by golden magic rings above and to the outside of his body. He's prone and like leaning forward by his arms. And it's kind of like a crucifixion, a Jesus Christ pose. I don't, I don't know, the, the feet are a key crucifixion element for me because probably the, the most harrowing part of the uh, crucifixion is the fact that you have to not only hold up yourself by your hands, but you have to do it by your feet. And you actually, you don't die from your wounds, you die from the just sheer exhaustion of your body in doing that. So, um, the fact that he's able to rest leans less crucifixion to me. I'm gonna go with, we only have one crucifixion so far this game, and that was Juju. Fuck that. Play it again. 
we will we will agree to disagree i will welcome the retro am podcast uh telling me i'm right as soon as i walk out the door here did you concede that he sounds like god i did i agreed with you on that one Mm, yeah but hey we don't know that jesus sounded like god he's just a regular ass guy right he was just a regular ass nazarean he wasn't a regular ass nazarean he was the son of christ or he was christ he was it's Whatever. It's the duality of it that makes it work. So he has to both be the son of God and a regular ass human. Right. Challenging. And this giant is not definitely not that either. He's not a regular ass person. It's like it's like Mrs. Doubtfire, you know, you're trying to balance these two personas and it's just it's just so hard to do. Yeah. For any of the listeners out there, uh Tyler and I were raised in church. Church is um it's an experience, right? So that's all I'll say. This giant is what the Hyentias have locked away for eons. Eons is a really long time, not a millennia, eons, which I assume are like a thousand millennia. I have no idea. He says his name. He says, I am Zanza, and I've waited centuries for you, of course, referring to Shulk. I am Zanza, and I have waited centuries for you. He claims to have made the Monado. He's the Produced the creator of the Monado, and all who wield him are known to him. It was designed to oppose the Mechanus, but it is in shackles itself. Kind of like how Zanza is in shackles. And it's due to this suppression of power of the Monado that opened up the opportunity for Mechons to produce faced Mechons. This, um, this shackling has, uh, has invited that sort of danger and so releasing Zanza will allow him to empower the Monado and perhaps be the final nail in the coffin for the destruction of all Mechon, all faced Mechon, all the Mechon, the entire Mechon problem. So that, that's his argument, but what he's not talking about is all of the ether energy that you command alongside it and I don't know, waking up Bionis and you know, creating apocalypse yeah and did you catch the there's a little flashback there did you catch the specificity of how the shackle works tell me um there was a uh, flashback to us when uh i think it was ryan flailing about with the monado in uh Shulk's oh, lab. yes yes and i do it, it it didn't cut fiora because it is not allowed to cut humans right and that is a shackle that has been placed on the sword, according to Zanza, mm. is it can't cut humans. That's a, or I keep saying humans, Homs, right? Okay. So that's a, that's a limitation. Now, we also know there's somebody, there's actually a few parties that want to be more Hom-like. We have Mechon that are being piloted by Homs. We've confirmed that through previous slight revelations in chapters and also we have Hyentia that are seeking to become more Hom-like so everybody apparently wants this element of Homness to them because that makes them immune to the super god weapon right Mm -hmm. but there's a dude who says that's bullshit the Monado was made to do whatever the hell I want it to do so if I want to cut a Homs, 
let me fucking do it. You know, I, that's that's my theory. I'm throwing out a little theory time here. I'm into um, it. That, I'm into that's it. what the shackle is, is the inability to kill human beings with it. And that the guy who made it isn't a big fan of that shackle. So when the Super Monado passes through a faced Mechon, it'll shear through the mech, the Mechonic frame and <laughs> disembowel the Hom inside in the same stroke. <laughs> well, th- that might be where the soul transfer is complete. So we know that there's a soul being put into the body of the Mechon as well. Mm-hmm. So maybe a Hom's or... You know, you could say it's any soul, but again, can I go grab an Igna and put their soul in a Mechon body and have it work? No, the Monado cuts the shit out of Igna. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so it has to be a Homs, apparently, that is inside that Mechon. And um, that is, with the soul transfer, we could see that maybe even the, the metal itself, that unification, is giving them, them that immunity, so to speak. We get some more uh, details from Zanza. I don't, I don't know if you mentioned this in yours, but um, the, um, the Monado was, a for, was forged to oppose Mechanus, as you said, controls all basis of life, which is ether. Ether is everything. All life everywhere comes from ether. Once again, we've chatted about the Zohar in previous games operating under that uh, stipulation, and it seems like the Monado is the similar function to this series and it has an actual weapon form now so officially we have that confirmation that link uh, of a shared element the infinite source of power that controls ether is the xenoblade mm-hmm. zanza himself was the one who once wielded the monado and defeated mechanis now this brings out a lot of questions for me because i thought the Bionis's giant ass sword being lodged into Mechanus's belly is what may have done that, but this doesn't seem like that's the case, right? Um, yeah, Ryan makes a joke about like you know Zanza wielding a little toothpick of a sword, and uh, we have a confirmation on another theory I had is that the sword adheres its form to whoever is wielding it, so it. It probably got huge when uh, Zanza wielded it. Lastly, Zanza says that the High Entia feared this power that he wielded. Um, you know, as as we said before, he made the sword. He made this device that is capable of harnessing all ether. Apparently, all ether comes from the Bionis itself. It's sitting here sleeping. If ether gets disrupted or awakened, Bionis wakes up. Who the hell knows how this all plays into each other? But... You know, the High Entia are like, don't disrupt the ether. We want to live on this giant corpse. And there's this other guy that's like, hey, I have a sword that can use all ether and do whatever the hell I want. That's pretty cool, right? So, um, so too was uh, the Monado bound up with Zanza. So Shulk is kind of having this inner crisis, or maybe not even a crisis. It seems pretty clear to him that what he wants to do, that Zanza is offering to... You know, at face value, at least in Shulk's perception, he doesn't have all these observations we have as players, but face value, make the Monado super powerful, have all the capabilities he needs it to have, right? 
I'm kind of struck by how Shulk is still just like laser focused on revenge, despite the like web of conspiracies he's finding himself within. He's learned of ancient wars, awakening gods, the end of all life on the world you stand on. And in my opinion, he just kind of lacks perspective. He's shared with us his legacy of his family and the sword and how now he's its chosen wielder. He's the the will of Bionis, so to speak, by having this item and that potentially all of reality is at his call and he's focused on killing the robot that killed his girlfriend. It's like, if all reality is at your call, then take the Monado back to the lake and just resurrect your girlfriend, right? That's that's my comic book logic coming into play here. And maybe he doesn't believe in the Monado that strongly, but you can't drop, you control all of reality and not make me think some of those thoughts. But Shulk is just, uh, you know, he's got to kill that robot. So he needs the sword to be a full power and releasing Zanza will do that. We do cut to Metal Face before Shulk uh, releases Zanza here. And in that moment, um, the Prison Island barrier is looks like it's maybe wearing thin. Um, but Metal Face, he's got this special secret weapon here, this enormous trident with glowing green sections. It gets a curious close-up shot when Metal Face like, holds it back like he's going to throw it at uh, the at the everybody. Yeah, everybody that's, you know, down there um, at the... Um, epicenter of Prison Island, right? And Melly and Shulk have this very interesting um, back and forth about whether or not they should free Zanza. I will remove those shackles for you, but you must take the Monado and free me from this prison. Free me and the Monado will cut down anything you wish. Nothing but a god can stand in your way. Don't do it, Shulk. But Melia, why? Something's not right. The forefathers must have had good reason to seal him. I need that power. I thought you of all people would understand. Um, Melia suspects something is going on, but Shulk says, I need to do this in order to save, in order to <laughs> get revenge on my girlfriend, save the world, whatever. Sansa says, I will not force you. I ask nothing in return. It is your choice. My last note is that this is 100% bad guy speech not a doubt in my mind um if you remember the old show lost uh, i'll just say quickly that the character of ben had a, a, a saying that i'm i'm kind of paraphrasing here um he had an uncanny ability to make people think it was their idea to do what he wanted them to do he was a master manipulator um a bit of that is going on here with zanza i'm sure because when you say i ask for nothing in return it is your choice that's almost always a lie in all of humanity like just anyone out in out in the out in the wild saying oh i don't need anything from you i'm just here have this giant thing this wonderful situation for yourself i literally don't want anything they're they're lying they probably want something so that's just a rule for life um it is what it is zanza is freed by shulk we get zanza screaming let the shackles be released and, you know, I don't know if he means him or the sword. Probably both. Um, and as soon as he does this, we have a interjection from someone maybe unexpected. The Green Lance then 
slices into the scene, pierces the magical barrier around the island, and then pierces Zanza right in the freaking chest. Pierces him in the chest and in the beard. <laughs> he pierces him. He <laughs> yeah. impales his beard. He gets in. No, he gets impaled right in the beard. <laughs> That's how I want to put it. The glowing green energy that we saw in the spear a couple scenes ago starts to inject into Zanza, who shudders and begins floating a little bit. Metalface and Nemesis face enter the scene. Charlotte recognize a silver-faced Mechon. Do we call her silver mech? Do we call her silver face? No, we call her Nemesis face. Yeah. Well, I've been calling her face Nemesis in my notes because that I believe that was how they were introduced first. I don't know. Is that wrong? Is that right? I don't know. Nemesis face and Zanza speak telepathically with one another. Respond, Zanza. I know you can hear me. I sense thought waves. Zanza, how many more will you sacrifice? Who are you to talk to me? How dare you? I don't know what Zanza's up to, but there's... He, he seems that he's playing the cosmic game or whatever, and people are just like a... I'm totally speculating here, but people are just like fodder for him, and I, I think that's what maybe... Um, Nemesis is referring to how many more will you sacrifice? Like he's he's playing chess, and we're all the pawns, right? So much chess. Yeah. So many boards. So little pawns. This game has a lot, a lot of games of chess going on all at once. If we're being honest here. So yeah, that exchange happens. Shulk rushes in. Battle commences. Metal face attacks. Dunbin and him have a spat, and Dunbin recognizes his movements. I don't know how, because to be honest, Metal Face is just this weirdly shaped cacophony of curves and circles and things kind of dangling about. So I don't know. I don't know how you can pick up attack patterns from that that you recognize, but whatever. Nate, Nate, when you're an anime swordsman, you recognize that shit, dude. Oh, yeah. It doesn't matter what form you take. It doesn't matter what form you take. He could have been an elephant, and he'd still recognize these attack patterns. That's true. That you got a good point there. It's uh, you know how there's like an anime for everything, and there's like a tennis anime, and like half the episode is them just in slow mo recognizing like the the form of their backstroke or <laughs> uh, the way in which they curved the racket at the last second to put a. Um, a little bit of a spin on the ball and everything. So that's probably happening here with Dunman. He he noticed like a, a slight curvature of the angle of the claw coming at him. And he's like, oh, that's, I recognize that. I've seen that a million times. Unmistakable, but not very believable. Cause he's like, what? No, it can't be. Do you know where we're going with this? Do you have your guests all queued up? There's only I only have one good guess. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Let's let's get it out there. It's not Waluigi. It's it's got to be Mumkar. Yeah, it's Mumkar because Mumkar had the claws. Did he have? The, I don't even remember what weapon he had. Did he have claws? Yeah. Yep, he's got the claws. Oh, so. I thought he had a I thought he had a driver like like Ryan did. Let's compare these two characters as voices. This is Mumkar from the prologue introductory scene when he, Dixon, and Dunbin are fighting in the Battle of Sword Valley. <laughs> Guess even a hero's gotta reach his limit eventually. 
And here's a quote from Metalface when he first opens his mouth in the fight after emerging from the mines beneath Colony 6. I can talk all right, and I got a good memory. So there's a fight going on, and um, the, I think, it was it Dunbin saved with a energy attack from the Emperor? Yeah, he channels the energy balls that kind of form a halo around the prison apparatus and he focuses them all on metal face and blasts them pretty good but it pisses him off and draws his attention to the emperor and very much like a handful of visions we've seen ever since in between now and 2019 when we started doing this podcast that's a lie by the way but yeah, it just not feels like that so right. we, we may have not actually said when we recorded our initial episode maybe you did you usually put dates at the beginning All we right, started whatever. in january yeah plus our episodes are time stamped when we publish them but that doesn't mean yeah. we didn't record then but we didn't i'm just telling you we didn't yeah and and we get the killing blow the killing blow for saurian the emperor of the high entia yep he is stabbed as he protects melia she's pushed away and uh, we get that same scene with the, the claws dripping in blood, the way we saw it with Fiora. Still doesn't look like blood to me, but I'm, I'm guessing there's some old Wii code in there that they're like, this is a bitch to change. Let's just give it a fresh coat of specularity and call it a day. I don't know. That's just, it doesn't look like blood. I don't want to die by someone pushing their giant knifed hand through my torso. That sounds horrible. Yeah. No, I don't want to go like that. I want to go differently. Well, and speaking about the size of those knives and impaling and everything like that, this guy survives for quite a while after this experience. (laughs) So he's living the full, just had three massive blades shoved through 40% of my body experience for quite a while. Yeah. Comprehensive lung capacity afterwards. Yeah. Um, Zanza speaks to Schultz mentally he is just a, a shell now appaled upon the uh spear weapon with the green floaty liquid in it and everything mm-hmm. um he tells shulk that the process actually did finish the 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 releasing of the shackles and the monado is unleashed the power is shulk's zanza's form evaporates into green light and flows towards shulk or the monado i can't tell the trident remains. Yes. You think he was possessing Shulk or the Monado? I don't think he's possessing Shulk because he talks to Shulk in a in a persuasive way. Sure, that makes sense. And I, and which would suggest like not having complete agency over another person, maybe. So we get an actual boss fight with Metal Face. I kick his ass. Yeah. Um that's about it. We get a we get a prompt that says we've unlocked the that the Monado's shackles have been released. The Monado Arts level up tiers can now go up to maximum level. Um, he's got a couple interesting abilities. He's got a, he's got a single target strike called Killing Blow, but um, this Pandora's box that we just opened has been very favorable to us so far, and so we, you know, trash him again. I'm tempted to um, kind of lean into the recent Earthbound Beginnings recording that i listened to yours and say that uh we bash him and we <laughs> bash him yeah you hear that a lot it's coming out on monday really excited nice um our favorite xenovision plays out <laughs> yes in real time this time <laughs> do you have any uh, we've already talked about this a lot to, to re-talk about it reanalyze it here kind of feels 
bad to me. It feels as bad as rewatching it live. Let's do it in a joyful way as as a means to celebrate that it is going to be in the past. Okay, um, I'll let you do that, and then I'll shit on it afterwards. How's that sound? Great. Um, after, once Metal Face gets to about 20% health, the battle ends, and Shulk um, has a does a two-handed overhead strike onto Metal Face, which shears off one of his limbs. Um, he begins walking over to... Oh, hold on here. Hold on here. The Monado... Okay, when we say the Monado's power has been released, it, like, open The mechanism of the Monado, the non-energy part, like, opens up even further. It has, like, more um, facets to its awesomeness. I'm, I'm having difficulty explaining, but, like, the frame gets, like, more complex and, like, has a larger width. And the beam extends 30, 50 feet. It's thicker, it's blue and white, and it's, it's enormous. I mean, it, it's been enormous before, but it is, like... I mean, it's full power, right? I joked in past... Uh, chapters about the Monado Viagra. I think this is Zanza's penis. We've got a lot of uh, just, uh, penises belonging to legendary figures in this game. Uh, yep, it's fully extended. Um, Shulk walks toward a prone metal face like he's psyching up for a killing blow and he says the line we hear so often you will know the pain and suffering you have caused the Emperor and Fiora. Nemesis face swoops in to block the blow shouting desist and he shears off a part of Nemesis' face instead, part of the frame, and revealing a Homs inside the torso. Now, I'm going to interrupt you here, because w- this is the end of what we've seen in the Xenovisions, right? Mm-hmm. So, if this this all played out exactly the way it's supposed to, this is the only time, maybe the last time, that a, a vision played out the way we saw it was with Fiora's death, right? Every other vision we've changed. So there's no changing fate on this one. It's a fixed thing that is going to happen either by Shulk's will of like, I want this to happen the way I saw it or by some other means. So like personally, it would feel unnatural for me to utter lines to someone that I'd heard myself say a dozen times before. Wouldn't you have that weird kind of sense of deja vu of like, wait, I'm hold on. I, I'm not going to actually say the thing I've heard myself say a hundred times, right? <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think he has that presence of mind. I think he's infuriated. He's in a rage. He's 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 got the god energy in his fists, and it probably crosses his mind during and after he says it. But by then, it's like I don't even give a shit. I want to destroy this thing. I, yeah, I'm so conflicted on that. But the thing that happens here is this dichotomy of like this vision being a fixed point that absolutely has to happen. And the other one's not being that. It begs the mm. question for me whether the other instances were quote unquote changed, or if we were shown false futures in order to push us in a direction that someone or something else wanted us to go. So, so for example, by showing us a future where Ryan dies to a giant spider. Go deeper in the cave, faster, unlock that Monado shielding power. I want you to have the, I want you to be unlocking the Monado. So I'm going to show you a vision of why you need this, right? And um, all of these kind of visions prompting this growth of his and then making those changes. Shulk's in the opinion of he's in the driver's seat. But I'm now in the opinion of all of these like kind of false futures that never actually came to pass are the product of the person actually in the driver's seat. And I'm going to get to that later in this chapter. But um, 
the fact that this vision is completely fixed and the one of Fiora's death being completely fixed kind of I, I don't know that that's where I'm at is I feel like there's manipulation going on here sure and there and you know what um yeah maybe there is I certainly feel it from Zanza because even in death we hear him pulling like an Emperor Palpatine like yes good feel the heat flowing through you once more the Sith will rule the galaxy yeah nobody really says good good swing to your heart's content well, <laughs> do you like that impression <laughs> I do no impressions but I can do an emperor okay yeah I'm not gonna do the impression but also the unlimited power it's like yeah that's the Monado <laughs> it's unlimited power yeah, right so that's it you got it um but you noticed uh, as you put there the shaft is sliced open so that means that face ones are no longer immune uh, it it worked. Yeah, it did work. Did you say who's on the inside? Did we get to that? Not yet. Go for it. So Nemesis Face speaks with Zanza from the grave again and says, "Is this what you truly desire?" And Zanza sees the human in the Macon and says, "Huh, it's interesting that you exist outside of the pre-established harmony." I see now. It is as I suspected. You exist outside the pre-established harmony. I don't know what that means exactly, but I know we're going to get into it. Um, the Hams reveals her helmet. I kind of assume they'd be in like a sedated catatonic state while they're in the Macon, but she's she moves her human arms to remove her human helmet and reveals... That is Fiora. Boom. At least the physical body of Fiora, the personality and the the kind of spark behind the eyes doesn't necessarily give me the like whimsy and joy of the young girl we met uh, a few months earlier may who, who knows we talked last chapter about how you know we're running up and down by honest this journey may have been going on for about seven years at this point if we're not actually teleporting and we're actually hoofing it so that might be a lot of time for fiora to develop from the young plucky girl to a uh catalyst of all wisdom so who knows? That was a joke, by the way. I don't actually think that we've spent seven years running up and down by honest. I think that this is another spirit that has been used. They're just using a Hom vessel as a means to avoid Monado cuts. Sure. Yeah, maybe. Oh, that's interesting. That makes a lot of sense. The soul transfer is complete, Tyler. <laughs> Today's a really bad day for them. <laughs> yeah. No shit. <laughs> Yeah, it's time to go. And then and they do, and they do. Nemesis Fiora says, My mission is complete. We're returning to base. She leaves, so does Metal Face, and I'd get the fuck out of there too if you've been like completely been rendered mortal all of a sudden. The Emperor is on the ground, and he says farewell to Melia. He lets Shulk have the Monado, and I have to ask myself, how many people are going to let Shulk have the Monado in this game? <laughs> it's true, yes. <laughs> And he dies. It's sad. We don't, I mean, we don't want him to die, but with his death, um, Melia assumes the role of the Empress in totality. She isn't just appointed it, she has inherited it. Yeah. And, oh, I'll say oh. one more thing. I'll, I'll say one more thing. And Shulk reinforces the revenge narrative onto Melia. Shulk says, you, 
You can't let them get away with this. And Melia says, my foremost concern is making them pay. What is it about Mechons and killing their loved ones that maybe this is, I'm, maybe I'm being stupid. Maybe this is obvious, but I, I, what is it about? Okay. <laughs> I'll get this sentence out and maybe I'll just delete it because it sounds so ridiculous, but I feel like I need to finish my silly point now. What is it about... What is it about Metal Face that makes characters' primary motivation revenge? Well, maybe killing or abducting their loved ones. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I think it's a shitty audio. We just want him to shut up. <laughs> I, I'm i I'm struck again. Like you said, uh, felt kind of like... I don't know that gaslight is the right word here. That's more manipulative, but it's just like Shulk's toxic trait of um, not having the big picture in his mind of all of creation of essentially being consumed and dying and telling his non-girlfriend to come and murder things with him just comes off as like, I don't know, we were talking earlier about somebody pure of heart has to be the wheel over the motto or everything's going to come to an end. And this is not very pure to me. No. Actually, I was just, as you were speaking, I had this idea. So, Zanza was doing the the Emperor thing, like the enthusiasm for, you know, going to dark places. And Shulk was saying, you can't let them get away with this. Kind of is an extension of that. Maybe he is getting Shulk to say the things he wants him to say and produce motivations in other people that he wants, that he wants to see. Yeah. Tyler, it's theory time. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, Zanza crafted the Monado. Yes. Have any other characters in the game crafted a weapon that can cut Mechon? Oh God, fuck me. <laughs> do you do you have a name in your head? <laughs> yeah, it's well. You're talking about Dixon, and Dixon does have glorious, godly facial hair. And he was the the one that brought Dunbin to our party, made sure Dunbin came with us. He was the one that told us about Prison Island, told us about the Telethia, told us about the High Entia, where we needed to go. We got through Satoral Marsh and he parted ways with us as soon as he would arrive somewhere where someone might recognize him. Oh no. So? Oh no. He's got one of those purple runes on his forehead. Yes, and I think he is an avatar for Zanza. He is like Zanza's oh spirit or something, and he's been watching over Shulk. He may he maybe killed Shulk's parents. He has been making sure we're doing Monado experiments in our free time, and then when it when it finally comes down to it, he sets us off on our quest. Well. The revenge thing set us off on our quest, but then after we met Metal Face at the end of the Ether Mines episode, he set us off on our kind of our next journey and answered all of our glaring questions from the vague ass vision that we had of Prison Isle, and uh, he got us on this path. So, with other details we've mentioned in this chapter, me questioning: Do the visions? Am I actually changing fate, or am I being shown things that are putting me on a certain course? And am I being coerced and manipulated by various different factors to pursue that course and be where I am to arrive at this location and do what I just did for the guy that was bound up? I think everything, include, even from the start of the game, is someone's little plot to get me here and break those chains. 
I guess I have to wonder if Dixon met Zanza. No. Well, Zanza would have been in prison. Okay, so I'm thinking I about think, the... I think Dixon is Zanza. He's just a he, like a shard or a, a little turd that he pooped out in his last seconds while he was being bound up, and he's like, all right, ball of flesh, get out there and find my boy. <laughs> There's There has to be some sort of clue about that in the... In the cutscene we saw at the beginning of the Tefra Cave episode where Dixon rescues the Monado and Baby Shulk from the Ice Cave. Yeah, we could look back on that in our free time. Mm-hmm. But that's that's my theory time. As soon as, as soon as he said, I made the Monado, I was like, oh, yeah. There's another guy that makes Mechon weapons. Hmm. So the final scene, Alvis is speaking with Zanza, although he's really speaking to that giant trident. And Zanza, the disembodied voice, says, I do what is necessary for the world. And Alvis says something very strange. He says, I could have stood in for you, which, what, what? Are they cut from the same cloth in some sort of way? Are they avatars of greater beings? I don't know. This was... This generally was very interesting to me. And now, earlier, we, were, we had Alvis talking to Lorithia, too. So, I don't know what her angle is. If she's she's seemingly a part of that Bionite order. So, are these all people that are Bionis-focused people? And when Zanza says, um, the world, is he talking about Bionis? Because Bionis is standing on top of an actual fucking world. Don't know. Maybe if Zanza's doing this for the good of the world, maybe Bionis is not an element of the world that is good. That's just random questions. It sounds like uh, sounds like a matter of balancing. And I'm thinking back to a quote I said maybe ten minutes ago, in which um, he's talking to Nemesis Face, and he says, "Scrolling up, one moment. You exist outside the pre-established harmony. So maybe doing what is necessary for the world is." doing something harmonious on behalf of the world. After Alvis says, I could have stood in for you, Zanza says, I appreciate that, and I see a storm on the horizon. Um, that's the end of it. What's going on with this trident? Um, the only green thing I can remember that was relevant was at the end of the previous chapter, we heard a new voice, presumably another based mechon, and a lot of green mechon imagery but it was all indirect and shadowy and you couldn't really get a good picture of what this mechon was now this mechon didn't look like a green spear but maybe it's an extension of that in some sort of way this whole chapter like races through certain things and like you know you go to one location you talk you go to another case and you talk you fight a boss that sucks and then you go to a dungeon that sucks and then you're Spending probably half the chapter in this one location. Um, I'm not sure how I would do it off the top differently off the top of my head. I don't have an outline that I made up here, but I just feel like there could be 25% less melodrama. The scenes could be broken apart by location instead of just, you know, uh, exposition dumps uh, in the city and then exposition dumps at the very end. Like, you know, when we are opening those gates. It's a perfect time for somebody like, oh, I have to 
I have to open this gate and I have to use this ancient relic. And then, then they talk about the dino beast or, you know, something like that instead of all of it kind of happening in the same location. And then there's just a pretty significant wind down too with the emperor dying and it all happens in that one location. Like everything is given its due, but it just takes so much that when I had to rewatch this for taking my notes, I just rewatched it two times speed because it's like, I, I didn't can't literally sit through it again because I was just like making me fall asleep and I'm used to this after playing Final Fantasy 14. Uh, it hmm. still baffles me how people praise like these overly indulgent scripts and law like long blocks of zero agency and you're just watching things and listening to people talk about ideas we've already been marinating in for several chapters. <laughs> So, I don't know. Um, my wife and I were watching recently, uh, catching up on the show The Dragon Prince. And it's a cartoon that resembles anime, but it is a Western cartoon. Um, I like that the pacing it employs. Um, dialogue is much punchier, or I should say, dialogue is much more punchy and uh, moves through relevant points without repetition and weird i don't know like godly postulating on certain emotions um characters resolve their arcs and thoughts in impactful ways that have that like satisfying element to it instead of feeling like they're psyching cycling through the same things just like we talked about how like shulk's motivated by revenge all this shit happens now he's still motivated by more revenge and gets other people to be motivated by revenge it's like I need an arc here, not just a whole game of revenge. Well, with, with Fiora being alive, that might adjust. But it didn't. <laughs> he, he's like, oh, Fiora's alive. I'm so happy. But they killed the Emperor. I guess I'm still revenge guy, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I cared so much for the Emperor, that guy I met yesterday. So, yeah, here we go. Anyway, so, and back to what I was saying about Dragon Prince, the scenes use the spaces and environments to move the chess pieces while delivering the exposition. So even if you're in a certain area, you're moving around the area, or you're walking up a mountain and entering a different vista and a view, and then they comment on that instead of just, you know, it, I think about how I spent maybe 20 minutes with the Mechon lined up on one side of the battlefield, me lined up in the middle, Zanza on the other end and just all the characters sitting in that formation for like six beats <laughs> I don't know mm -hmm. felt weird um that's I I'm this is like the nitpicking thing where it's like now that we all have mics and we all have the internet everyone has an opinion and why does it matter that I have an opinion so it's just me kind of firing off there that this chapter being a culmination of everything this point we've been working to um, probably the least enjoyable and least hype moments of me playing this game were in this chapter. And that's weird because I genuinely feel like the Zanza revelation is good and fun, but everything else that it was trapped in was really boring and really restricting. Uh, liked seeing Nemesis face, liked seeing Zanza, liked hearing Zanza. I thought the voice and the uh, the effects putting on put on the voice was pretty interesting there. I have to agree with you that the scenes are 
melodramatic. I, however, I did like the set piece that was the pinnacle area of Prison Island there. Like, I know that's where all plot points are converging, and so uh, I'm going to give it some uh, credit for that. But even better, I'm really excited to see where we're going next because I have no effing idea. I think we can go in one of two places. We're either going to go hard on the offensive, like we're going to invade something now that we've got the Super Monado, or we're going to look into giant lore stuff and go to some some environment that is the ancient homeland of giants. I think we'll do one of those two things. We're either going to Sword Valley and we're taking out that outpost that was referenced earlier, right? Or we're going to Bionis Butt. Bionis Butt? <laughs> we're going to Bionis's Butt. That's all I'm going to say. We, we had that gastrointestinal what? area that has a map and has items to be turned in for the collectathon, but we spent all of a minute and a half inside. So we we shot up the lung or whatever the hell that was. Now we're the going, trachea. We're, yeah, now we're going to jump down the throat, head into the gastrointestinal system, and go straight for that Bionis butt. What kind of geographic area will, will be on the Bionis ass? The Bion ass. Oh, we already had a swamp, so I can't make a swamp ass joke. So. No, we can't have a swamp. Um, we could be... Let's, let's go volcano. <laughs> An ether volcano, but it's like, it's to the side. Yeah, It's like off the side of a cliff and not like from the ground up. <laughs> yes. Oh man, you have twisted, Nate. I have no plot relevance for that, but hey, we'll make one up. There's, there's a... So... There'll be, you know, we've got Hyantia, ancient races, dinosaur people. We've got a giant that makes swords that ended the war or whatever. There's going to be another new race that's even more ancient than either one of them. And he's been <laughs> pulling the puppet strings all along. He's actually Bionis' dad. And he's been <laughs> living. <laughs> that's it, I'm done. It's funny because it's so probable. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for listening everybody again this was hero with a thousand potions podcast a gaming podcast a book club like podcast for games but for video games to scratch your nerd itch when you're not playing video games. And then I'm going to make you watch Gundam, and it's not games anymore. If you're following along with us, complete chapter 10 before crushing the next episode. We have an email, here with a thousand potions at gmail.com. That's 1000 potions. We actually put a Discord link into our podcast description, which is in our RSS feed. So wherever you read the podcast description, wherever you find us, it's there. So you can like copy paste and like join us. There's nobody here, but hey, let's build a community together. We're also on Twitter at hero with a thousand pot. Also one zero zero zero. Uh, my name's Tyler. That's Nate. Nate, say hi. Hey. Nate, say bye. See ya. And I'm never going to give up. Let's get this done and dusted. And uh, yes, there is actually a character named Howard in my guild. He was a demon hunter named Hazard until the guild leader mispronounced it. 
he then logged off, paid $10, and changed his name officially to Howard. And I was blown away that the name was actually available on our server because I play on literally the first server ever made for World of Warcraft. So sorry whoever out there wanted to name their character Howard on Alaria, but it has been taken. Don't man, when Shulk turned into a Tyrannosaurus Rex and, you know, demolished Colony 6 when we were halfway building it, that was just, the sh- that was miserable, isn't it, Ricky? And then Ricky says, yeah, I didn't like that either. Give me a kiss. Uh, yeah, so we've had this whole big guide of how to watch Gundam, and I still can't, like assertively say the right way to do it because Mm -hmm. the original is it is what it is but i can't necessarily say it's good as a show to watch it is good as a sequence of events to relive in your head Mm -hmm. (laughs) but watching the show is not enjoyable in the modern day at least for me i don't know i probably see about that i probably offended someone deeply by saying that some games do that where like the the weird mascot character is like the most ancient or the most um evolved creature i know that in chrono trigger the news were very like that in um i think choo choo had something to do with that too in xeno gears there's got to be other examples but i'm not thinking of any I think in Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess, I might be wrong about this, but you go to the, you go to the Sky Temple or whatever, you, you go to a, a dungeon in the sky and you meet you meet chickens with human heads. Oh my and what the fuck? 